You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. Well, I, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, I love Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's probably one of yours, too. It's, I mean, it's just a great time. It's a great time to get together with the people you really love. Oftentimes, your family's there, too. Uh, so it's, uh, it's just a really magical time. I love uh, Thanksgiving. I love my family. We, we actually had an amazing time. We were with my uh, side of the family this year, and it's just a, a blast. It's a little ridiculous. Everybody in our family's deaf, so you're just, you know, you're paying each other compliments, but you're shouting it, so it just sounds like everyone's angry, like, I said those pants look good, you know, but it's, but it, it, we, we play games, we, we do games a lot. There's this game our kids play called Spot It. My mom called it Spotify the whole time, which is just the most <laughs> boomer thing that you could do. I love it. Uh, it, was, it was great. And it, it, there was the fun things, and there was also like more like deep and robust things. Like we had time to like really thank God for uh, what he's done in our life. We went around the table. You guys maybe did something like that and just thought about the past year and what God has done. We had these awesome talks in the evening that just Jesus got brought up. And we started ruminating on, on who he is and what the church is and, and what we uh, love about him. It was just, it was special. And at one point, uh, my mom, kind of out of the blue one of the evenings, kind of commentated on her experience uh, of the week. And she said just something so profound, it struck me. She looked at us all and she said, man, with all of you here, I just, I feel like I got full today. And she wasn't talking about the turkey. She was talking about the people and the the conversations we were having and the, the dialogue and the traditions we took part in. And as she reflected on all that, she just started to realize, man, I'm enriched by this. Like, I'm, I'm strengthened by these moments. I feel full. And, and she said that. And as soon as she said that, uh, it just struck me. What I'm experiencing right now is I, I'm looking at a parable of the gathered church. That's, that's what we're experiencing this week. This is a, this is a parable of the gathered church, that, that rhythm of the family gathering together to come get filled. I mean, that's really what we're doing here, isn't it? It's, it's the, the weekly rhythm of gathering together as the family to come get filled. Now, I'm telling you this. Why? Because... One thing we've been saying from the beginning of this series is this, uh, intimacy with God, formation into the image of God, those things are not automatic. They don't just happen on autopilot or by default. That, that's not how it works. Your holiness isn't automatic. Loving Jesus more isn't automatic. These, these things take things to get you there. Rodney talked about it last week. Do you remember this? Uh, he was saying to, to be formed people, we really need two things to be present in us. We need, one of those things we need is grace. We need, gra we need God's grace. If God doesn't intervene in your life to change your heart, to give you new affections, to see him as precious, you're not gonna change. You need the grace of God to flood into your life for anything to happen. But you don't just need grace. The Bible says you need something else. You also need grit, right? Grace empowered grace fueled grit we need to actually do some things if we want to be conformed into the image of jesus it requires labor if we want to be formed to look like him you can't coast into christian maturity any more than, than a person on a bicycle can coast up a mountain you don't coast up you pedal up it's the nature of the bike and how it works if you want to go north it takes work right so it's it's grace 
and its grit. And, and uh, this grit is expressed in what we're just calling uh, the spiritual disciplines or rhythms of grace or best Christian practices or spiritual habits. That's what this series is largely for. It's to help you and I identify those habits that God spelled out in his word that will help us be formed into his image. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing here. And so we've already talked about some of those habits over the past uh, few weeks. So a couple weeks ago, uh, our friend Trip Lee came and, and he preached on the habit of being in God's word, of having a consistent diet, of engaging with the word of God. And last week, uh, Rodney talked about prayer, that prayer is so crucial, that have a, having a robust prayer life is so important for your spiritual formation. And so he challenged us in that. And the habit today that we're exploring is the habit of the gathered church. That's where we're going today, the habit of the gathered church, that, that week in, week out rhythm of coming together with the people of God to be filled up with love for Jesus. That's, that's what we're doing. Now, and here's the main thing I want you to embrace today. If you don't see anything else, if you don't catch any other sentence, get this one. This is what I want you to, to embrace, that the gathered church is central to your survival. If there's nothing else that you catch, catch this. What we're doing here every Sunday, the gathered church is actually, according to the Bible, central to your survival. Now, I don't know if you think about it that way. When you wake up on Sunday, I don't know if you're like, I'm gonna live because I'm going to church. I don't know if you think about it like that or if you just hit snooze nine times. I don't know what it is for you, but I, but I do know that when we look at statistics these days, the statistics are all telling us how we generally as Christians are thinking about this is changing more and more to where we're not believing that sentence. So uh, for instance, uh, two decades ago, so year 2000 or so, Regular church attendance meant someone who attended church once to twice a week. That's what regular church attendance two decades ago in the 2000s meant. Uh, the year before the pandemic, 2018, 2019, right around there, th th that number had changed to regular attendance, meaning you're a regular attender if you attend church two times a month. Post-pandemic, we don't have all the stats on it, but we have a lot of anecdotal evidence from a lot of churches around the areas uh, of the states. The anecdotal evidence that's coming out is post-pandemic, we're seeing that regular attendance basically means attending about one time a month. So you can see the trend going down like this. And you go, well, of course, it's a pandemic. But the numbers have already been doing this. Since the 50s, the numbers have been doing this in terms of attendance. And even though some of the effects of the virus have, have been ebbing culturally, we're seeing actually not re-flooding of churches with people, but we're seeing stagnation. We're seeing the numbers staying low, even though the cause for staying home is uh, less and less. And so it, it, that at least says this to me. It at least says that Christians writ large, are increasingly not believing this sentence. The gathered church is central to my survival. I just don't think we're believing that like we used to believe that. And, and what I wanna convince you of this morning is that sentence is true. 
And so I'm, we're going to do it by looking at two different things. Uh, I want to show you two things. One, how the gathered church works. How, what, what are we doing here? What are, what are the elements involved in this thing that we call Sunday morning that actually help form us into Christ's image? What are the things the Bible tells us to do here? So how the gathered church works, and secondly, why you need it more than you think. So I, I want you to see those two things in an effort to convince you that this gathering is central to your survival. Okay, so let me, uh, let me talk about all that by first explaining uh, what we mean when we talk about the gathered church. What do, when I say church, what, am, what do I mean? What, what do you mean when you say it? Uh, let me give you just a, a simple working definition of what the church, capital C, is, uh, and we can go from there. The church, if you want to think about it like this, is, is simply all the people Jesus has purchased from all time. That's the church. You want a simple explanation of that? All the people Jesus has purchased from all time. So uh, Martin Luther, to Martin Luther King, Abraham to Abraham Lincoln, like that, the crew of people that Jesus has purchased, uh, those, those people make up the church. So it's not a building, it's not a place you go to, it's people. And it's everyone that he's purchased from all time. That's the capital C church. Now that capital C church expresses itself. You, you know, we don't see every Christian that has ever been in all time. We don't fellowship with every Christian in every place from all time. That won't happen till heaven. So th the expression that we experience on this earth is that capital C church spreading out in local groupings throughout the world called local churches, lowercase c churches. That's what we're in right now. This is, this is the church. This is part of the capital C, but it is its own church right here at Stonegate. And it's interesting when you, when you look at this idea of the church in the New Testament, what comes out, the, the most common word the Bible, the New Testament is going to use to describe the church uh, is this word ecclesia. You probably heard that word before. And what's interesting about it, and the reason I bring it up, is this word um, has as its core sort of definition the notion of assembly. It means assembly, or to assemble. That's, that's what it means, which, which means baked into the very sort of like core of this word that the New Testament uses to talk about you uh, is this idea of assembling together, gathering together. So, so one of the core things it means for us is that the church of Jesus Christ shines her brightest or gains her fullest expression as we gather together. This is what it means to, uh, this is what I mean when I say the gathered church, this is what we mean. Now, historically, what has that meant? That, that has meant that Christians gather weekly on what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day, which is their way to talk about Sunday, the day the Lord rose from the grave, the Lord's Day. We gather on the Lord's Day, uh, and that church, the, the churches assemble to corporately worship God and, and strengthen each other. That's what it means. So gathering is not the only thing we do, right? That's not the only thing that defines us or informs the world about what the church is, but it is definitely one of the first things it means to be part of the church. Does that make sense to everybody? That, that's one of the core things it means. Now, if that's true, if, if we're understanding that right, a couple things follow from this. One of the things that follows uh, is this. Uh, there is no, if that's true, there is no such thing as uh, Lone Ranger Christians. That idea of, of just like 
some scruffy dude with a backpack full of Bibles just taking on Satan in the world, you know, just that guy, just, just him and Jesus against the world, that, that doesn't exist. That's not, that's not any biblical model of a Christian at all. Doesn't exist. It's not, it's not a thing. Uh, it, it's uh, the, the word Christian and the word isolation, they are mutually exclusive. They don't go together. They're incompatible. So if you're a Christian, it means that you're part of Christ's church, ecclesia, the assembly. And if you're part of his assembly, that means that you, wait for it, assemble, right? It means that we assemble with each other. That's, it's baked into the definition of who we are fundamentally. So, say it another way, we're meant to be with each other. We're meant to be with each other. I, I remember uh, years ago, I saw a cover of Relevant Magazine. I had a, it had a picture of the, the recording artist Moby. I don't know if you remember that guy, shaved head, electronic artist. Anyways, on the cover, uh, and there's an article about him, and the cover says, uh, Moby, why he loves Jesus, but not the church. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, and I don't know this guy, right? So I, I don't want to commentate too much on him. I, I just want to tell you, whatever that is, that's not Christianity. It's something. It's just not Christianity. You can't love the head and not love the body. That just, it, it doesn't go well. That wouldn't work very well in my, my marriage. You know, baby, I love your face. I take or leave your body. It's fine. Uh, that just wouldn't go well for me, right? It's, all, it's a package deal. You get the whole person. Right? And, and that, what, that analogy is really fitting of how we should think about us in the church. I love the way um, the early church father, uh, Cyprian, in, in the 200s, he said it. He said, uh, no one can have God for a father who does not have the church for his mother. Isn't that beautiful? I, I love that. Uh, we are meant to be with each other. We're meant for each other. That's one, one thing that this means. Here's another thing that it means. It means that if all that's true about the church and what it is, <clears throat> it means that Sunday gatherings aren't like some cool invention we came up with one day, like some pope in the you know, year 900 was like, hey, you guys should get together more often. I don't know, you should do it like weekly, unless the game's on. But if, but if not, then you guys get together and let's do this. Thing. That's not, that's not, it's not some like novel thing we came up with. This is baked into the, the it, it's, fundamental to who we are as people. We gather, if you're part of the church, you're part of an assembly, and the assembly assembles. It's central to our identity. But more than that, as we're about to see, it's central to our survival. Now, let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bible, get it out. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, we've covered this passage uh, about a year ago, but we're going to take it from a slightly different angle. Let me just give you some context before we jump in. So um, especially the back end of Hebrews is doing this work. It's helping you see the unbelievably unlimited access to, that you have to God the Father through Jesus. It's, it is showing you that what was shadowy and opaque in the Old Testament is now bright and clear in the New Testament. It's showing you that what Jesus accomplished in his death was the fulfillment of all of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament such that I, I'm not blocked anymore from the Holy of Holies. There's no veil there anymore for me because the veil, the scripture says, was Jesus's body. And when it was torn in two, it made a way for me and you to go through into God's presence. So, so the great cry of Hebrews is, you get God now. 
unbridled, full access backstage pass, you get God. That's, that's what Hebrews 10 is, is really wanting to pronounce and announce to us. And if that's true, that we now have this access that we never had before to God, things follow from that. There's some, there's some implications. There's some things we ought to do in light of that. And so right after the writer says all this, he gives us three imperatives, three commands. Well, what are they? Look at verse 22. Here's the first one. He says, in light of all that, let us now draw near to God with sincere hearts. So he's opened the door wide to you. God has opened the door through Jesus. Now, he's saying, come in. Come in. Come close to God. He's opened it up. Come close. Why would you not? Then the second command, uh, the next verse, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. So after you come close, stay close. Come close and then stay close. Don't leave this place. Don't leave his presence. And then he wraps up with the third imperative in verse 24. He says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So come close, stay close, and help your brother stay close too. Help your brother stay close too. He's saying, I I, I think this is fascinating, this is so countercultural to how we think about these things. He's saying, you don't just have a responsibility to draw near to God. You actually have a responsibility for her and him and her to draw near to God. We bear responsibility for each other and each other's flourishing spiritually. Did you know that? That's what the scripture says. This is so not how we think about this, but that's what it says. That phrase in verse 24, stir one another up, I love it. It literally means to aggravate or provoke or incite. It's like, uh, it's the same word used when Paul and Barnabas, they split up and it said because they had a sharp disagreement. Same word in the Greek as right here. Uh, uh, Stir one another up. It, It means this, you need to find ways to, I mean, for lack of a better word, annoy each other into enjoyment of God. That's what he's saying. Stir up one, provoke each other into what he says is love and good deeds, a heart that loves God and a life that moves out in service to others because of that love. We need to stir up each other to loving deeds. Help your brother and sister get fired up about the things of God. Did you know that's a responsibility you have? That's what the Bible says. We're responsible for each other in that way. Now, Now, how do we do that? He just told us to do that, but how do we consider? In what ways can we make that a reality? Well, he doesn't leave us hanging. Verse 25 tells us how, and it's gonna blow your mind. Here's the answer he gives. How do we stir each other up? Go to church. That's what it says. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. That, that one of God's mechanisms to stir up love and good deeds inside you is the rhythm of Sunday service. Is that how you think about this thing? The, one of the ways that God is intending to stir you up to love and good deeds is this moment right here. That word meet, where it says, not neglecting to meet together, 
It's a Greek word that's made up of two shorter Greek words, the, the word for at and the word synagogue. That we should be at synagogue with each other. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? It, it? The word synagogue literally means the place of assembly. So he's saying you should not stop assembling. Keep assembling. Come together. Gather together. He says that so, so we're not to neglect to meet together, as, as some are in the habit of doing, but, but rather, he says, encouraging one another. Now, I want you to slow down with me over this and just follow the logic of this sentence. I, I found it... Uh, uh, really powerful when, when I realized what he was saying. Okay, so he just said, don't stop meeting together, right? That's, that's what he just said, not neglecting to meet together. So don't stop meeting together, but, so here's a contrast, or, or instead of that, do this next thing I'm about to say. So how would you finish that sentence? Don't stop meeting together, but instead, here's how I would finish it, meet together, right? Don't, don't stop doing that, but continue doing that. Continue meeting together. But what does he say? He says, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. I don't know if I'm just being super nerd and finding this really interesting or if this is actually compelling, but I, th I think it is. And I don't want you to miss it. L look what he's doing. He sees meeting together and encouraging one another as equivalents. He doesn't see them as distinct from each other. Otherwise, he would have said so. He said, don't stop meeting together, but encourage one another. As if, well, meeting together, of course, that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be encouraging one another. So go, go encourage one another. And by that, of course, I mean meet together, assemble together. It's the same thing for the writer of Hebrews. Meeting together and encouraging one another. The same Sunday gatherings, according to Scripture, are an occasion to encourage one another to love and good deeds. That's what they're for. Now this begs the question to me, whether you, you attend church regularly or not, that's not the issue right now. Here's the issue. What do you think this thing is? Like seriously, when you, when you consider our gatherings, you showed up here this morning, here you are. What is this thing? What do we do? What, I think one of the main reasons Sunday gatherings can feel so take it or leave it for so many of us is that we've been taught we have no responsibility when we come. That I'm just taught, I just come to get stuff. I'm here to get whatever awesome stuff they have to offer me up here. And if it's not great, there's another church right over there, I can head that way, right? I'm and maybe it's even a noble coming to get stuff. It's, I'm coming because I need help. I'm broken, I'm wounded, I need, I'm, I'm struggling. So I've come in here, but I'm coming only to get. And I, I wanna be clear, it's not wrong to come to church to get help. By all means, I mean, that's why we're here. We, we wanna get help and wholeness and healed and all those things. That, that's one of the reasons we gather, but it's not the only reason we gather. We, we're not just doing that, we're not just getting help. The scripture says we are giving help. If you want to think about it like, um, like the church being a hospital, you're not the only one coming in with a bullet wound. It, we're all in the same war out there, right? It's a mess, and we're all coming in with, with battle scars and wounds, and we're just a bloody mess. And what the scripture is saying is when you get in this space, you're not just thinking, how can I get my wounds dressed 
you're thinking, how can I dress his wounds, her wounds? I'm here to encourage one another. You're not, or is it, you're not just a consumer. You're a contributor. First uh, Corinthians 14, 26 puts it like this. Uh, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, and he says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, and then listen to what he says. He's saying, all of you guys have spiritual gifts, and when you come together, here's what he says. Let all things be done for building up. He's saying, hey, everything you've been given, when you assemble together, you should have one thing in mind, building each other up. You're not just here to take, you're here to give. You're not just here to consume, you're here to contribute. We are here to help each other. How would that change how you interact here? I mean, how would that change our, our conversations in the lobby? Right? Um, imagine going uh, after service or before service and you're in the lobby and instead of just uh, f- f- playing the how fast can I get to my Honda Odyssey, you're, you're, you're going, who can I pray for? And, and, you're at, and you're like talking, and you're like listening to their stories. You go, man, that feels really hard. Let's go to the Father together about that. Or like if people are confessing sin to each other and like repenting to each other, like, like trying to meet, meet. like imagine if, if it, your conversation in the lobby wasn't just about what Dak did or didn't do at the game, but it was like, how can I help you? The posture of scripture is if you're here, you're obviously here because you're here to encourage one another. What if we lived like that? That's what the call is. We're not just consumers, we're contributors. That's why the, the analogy of the church being a body, I think, is really helpful. Because if, if the arm sleeps in, we got no arms, and we gotta carry stuff. So it, it really matters. I tell, uh, you know, I have a, a couple people in my life that um, for one reason or another have stopped going to church altogether, and my challenge to them is always this. You're not just missing out on what God wants to give you through other people. But you're actually withholding what God wants to give other people through you. See, and we don't think about it like that. We just think, well, you know, it's maybe a loss for me. No, it's actually a loss for other people if the arm sleeps in. We don't do that. We come together because you have been designed and gifted by God to help her and him help her. That's what we're designed to do. So we gather, does this make sense? We gather to contribute to each other, to build each other up. That's why we're here, to spur each other on to love and good works. Okay, that was just the intro. Now let's talk about how this thing works. How does this work? So now we're here, we're here. What's taking place in our assembly, according to the Bible, that's intended to spur us on? to love and good deeds? What are the elements that need to be at play for this to be a a healthy, functioning church gathering? What's involved? So what I wanna do over these next few minutes is take a tour with you of the elements that ought to make up our church's gatherings. Now I'm doing this for a couple reasons. One one of them is, you know, if you ever wondered, like, are you guys just making stuff up as you go up here? Like, no, we're not. It's in the book, well, most of it is. Uh, we're making some of it up. There's nothing about smoke machines in, in the Bible. But uh, in the main, uh, we're, not, we're not making these things up. I want you to see that from Scripture, that there are, there are biblical reasons for what we're doing here as a church family. And I want to help you just have discerning eyes. I want you to be able to, to look around at, at this church, at other churches, if, if God ever moves you, and, and be able to go, oh, 
They're doing what the scripture says. This feels healthy. I can plant here. I can have a family here. We can do that. I want you to have some discernment. So I, I want to just, I want to look at five things that the, the New Testament says ought to make up uh, our Sunday gatherings. Uh, and you're going to notice all of these things have one thing in common, is that they all have this one core piece at, at the center, and it's this, the Word of God. The Word of God is the centerpiece of all of these attributes of a church gathering. So here's the first one, the Word preached, the Word preached. Now I'm going to ground this in uh, 2 Timothy 4, I can go all sorts of places, but 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, uh, Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. What does he say? Verse two, preach the word. So Paul, if, if you need a refresher, is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. Timothy is a timid little pastor in Ephesus, big city, little pastor. And Paul's giving him some exhortation, some encouragement. And the last chapter of the last letter Paul's ever going to write to him, Paul looks at him and he says, if you don't do anything else, you do this, Timothy. You preach the word. That word preach is the word keruso. It's not the word for teach. It is a different word. The word keruso carries with it more of a sense of heralding or proclaiming or announcing that is what we're doing when we preach. We are, it's like I have news that I'm coming to bring to a people. There's something you need to hear, and we're here to announce that thing. That is what keruso means. And what is the thing that we are announcing, proclaiming, declaring, heralding? What is that thing? He tells us, preach the word. You preach the word. What should be coming from a pulpit on a Sunday isn't some pastor's cool riffs on some cultural topic to get us all stirred up about nothing. What should be coming from the pulpit every Sunday is God's word. Proclaimed, explained, and applied. That should be coming here. And that word, scripture tells us, is typified, it finds its, its zenith in the revelation of Jesus Christ. You guys remember uh, uh, Hebrews 1, 1? God, after he had spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, he's talked in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the, the zenith of God's word going out, his expression, his proclamation is Jesus Christ to us, which means if you're not hearing Jesus from this pulpit or any other pulpit every Sunday, if you're not hearing about the hope that's found in his life for you, his death for you, his burial, and his resurrection for you. If, if every text is not ultimately maneuvering its way to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, you need to get out. Because that's unbiblical. We are to preach and have preached to us the word. The job of the pastor is to proclaim and explain and apply the gospel of Jesus to God's people. So make sure you're in a church where the gospel, the God's word is being heralded. Number two, the word read. So the word preached, 
Now the word read. I, I get this from 1 Timothy 4, 13. It says this, until I come, Paul again, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, in the first century, public reading of scripture was even more crucial because there was high literacy and they didn't have pocket Bibles, right? So it was important for the pastor to stand up here and literally read the scripture. That's, that's important. But I would say it's just as important now, even though everybody has a Bible. It's important because of the potency of the thing that is being read. It is God's word coming out into the ears and hearts of people. And that is profoundly powerful. Your church should be a, script, uh, should be a, a scripture reading kind of church. You should hear the Bible read publicly at whatever church you're at. That is a normative expression of Sunday gatherings. And it's something that I'm so grateful that we do here often at Stonegate. I, I was just talking a couple weeks ago with a group of Stonegaters and we were reflecting on this idea and one of them had mentioned uh, remembering the beginning of our Jonah series. Was anybody here for that? The beginning of our Jonah series, we uh, Jonah's a short book, so it's just four chapters. And if you remember how we started the series, we just read the book, just read four chapters, and then it was kind of like, amen. And then we sang some songs, and we were done, right? It, but, and he was reflecting on that, and he was going, I've never, I've been in church my whole life, I've never been at a church that just read the Bible. And it was so powerful to him, it was so forming, just to hear the, the authoritative, piercing truth of God's word just proclaimed in all its glory over a people was powerful. And it is powerful, that's what the scripture tells us. Second Timothy calls the scriptures the thing which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear that read? So we read the word publicly. That should be a normative thing happening in a local church, Sunday to Sunday. Number three. The word sung, the word sung. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. We could also go to Colossians 3, but we'll do Ephesians 5. It says this. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How? Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay, so a couple things I want you to notice here. In this text I just read, who's the audience our songs are being sung for? There's two, aren't there? One of the audiences is the one we'd all expect, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So, of course, we're singing our songs to God, of course. But is it only that? No, it's not. Did you see what the text said? Be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you know that when we sing up here and when you sing there, you are not just trying to create a thousand individual personal quiet times with God. Where it's just me and God, I'm just reaching up to heaven, I'm just singing my song to him. That you could do that at home. You don't have to come here for that. You just put on a worship album, just sing, right? But when you're here, we're doing something different. We're singing to him, but the text says we're singing to each other. You're singing to me, and I'm singing to you, and she's singing to him. Why? Because there is a spiritual transaction 
happening when the saints raise their voice to sing the word of God. Something happens inside of us. What do I mean? I mean this. I am strengthened as a Christian when I hear my brother over here who just lost his son a year ago sing, great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my father. And I look at him as he's singing and I see tears coming down his face. I can stand on the the shoulders of the faith of that man as I struggle to believe my own struggles, my, 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 my belief. I, I need to hear that woman who's dealing with stage four cancer singing, Christ alone, my hope is found. And Christ alone, I'm not looking anywhere else but Jesus, and I hear it in her voice as it's shaking. I need to hear that. It strengthens me as a Christian. It emboldens my faith. There's a spiritual transaction that happens when we sing. You should not be timid when you sing here. You should sing loud because you're obeying scripture when you do. You're allowing, even if you're bad, it's okay. You need other people to hear you and you need to hear them. It's what the scripture says. It has a forming effect on us when we hear the saints sing. Does that make sense? Number four, the word furthered. The word furthered, which is how I'm referring to the act of taking an offering or giving. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 16, says this in verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul speaking again, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul is looking to the Corinthian church. He's saying, hey, here is the rhythm you need to be in as a church. Every week, we're gonna take a collection for the saints, he says. And at the beginning of every week, on the first day of every week, that's the Lord's Day, that's Sunday, each of you is to set aside something and store it up as he may prosper. So whatever the Lord has given you, be thoughtful about what to set aside, and you set aside an amount of your wealth for the collection for the saints, that, that the mission of God in Jerusalem at that point uh, that was taking place could be further. The mission of God could be fueled by the generosity of the people of God. It's a command in scripture. Now, I put this in here uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, it's, it's just biblical. It's in the Bible. I, I, I run into so many folks who like the, the most cynical version of that person is going to say something like, gosh, why are we always talking about money or something like that? Which I actually don't think we talk that much about money here. But I've, I've certainly been in churches that have and all that. And, and even if they do, the issue is not why are we talking about money so much? But the issue is, is it biblical or not to put an emphasis on generosity and giving and offerings? And the answer is, yes, it's biblical. The, the scripture commands that we do this. The other reason I put it in here is because I want you to, to think about the forming effect it will have on your heart to every week, 52 weeks a year, come into a room full of people and open up your hands from around your wealth and say this with your offering, I love Jesus more than stuff. Imagine doing that 52 times a year for your entire Christian life. How would that form your heart? to make you not love the things of this world, but the mission of God. It would form you, wouldn't it? 
That's why it's command. This isn't just, I don't, we don't just need your money like to build cool stuff and do that's it's, it's not, we want something for you. Paul wants something for the church. And what he wants is their hearts to be formed into a posture that says, I want Jesus more than I want what he's given me. And so we give every week. It's biblical. It's normal. Don't be freaked out by it. It's right and it's good. And lastly, number five, the word pictured or the sacraments. So according to the New Testament, we have two sacraments that the Christian church recognizes as uh, being biblical. Uh, We have the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Uh, baptism, we see that in Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission passage with Jesus. Uh, communion, we, we get that first glimpse of it at uh, Luke 22, 19. Jesus has the bread and the wine. He, he, he breaks it, he pours it, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul reiterates that to the Corinthians. So, so it's modeled in scripture. This is a rhythmic thing the church should be doing as we gather, that baptisms ought to be happening and that uh, taking the Lord's Supper together as a church family ought to be happening. Now, each, this is why it's significant, because each time we participate in something like a baptism service, which aren't they just so great and refreshing here? And I'm so, uh, we just do it so much more often than I've seen any other church do it. I love that we get to do that here as often as we do it. Every time we participate in a baptism service, or or, or the time that you were baptized yourself, or each time that we take communion together as a church family, and we take the bread and we take the cup, we do that. We are rehearsing with our bodies the gospel message. The the gospel is not just an intellectual game. It's meant to pervade and invade our whole person. And so God has given us means that aren't just brainy. They're not just, hey, think on this thing. They're tactile. In in a little bit, we're going to take communion together as a church family. And you're going to taste bread and drink from the cup. And you're going to experience things on on your tongue and as you're holding it with your hands. It's a reminder. This thing is for your whole life. Like it's a forming event in the life of a Christian to rhythmically, regularly participate in the sacraments. It preaches a gospel with our body, not just with our mouth. And it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's another way to drill home the message of Jesus in a human heart. And so we do it regularly around here. Now just imagine all those five things I just said, all, all those uh, five Sunday habits. Imagine for a moment those things are happening in a church that you're involved in every week. Those five Sunday habits, you're regularly participating in them, and you're doing that almost every Sunday of the year and uh, you're doing that for the lifetime uh, of you as a Christian. Just imagine that. Some of you don't have to imagine it. Some of you, that's, that's your experience. You've been doing it for a, a lifetime. But just imagine, how would that form your heart? How would that shape how you think, how you act, how you speak, how you understand God, how you interact with others? How would that shape you? It would shape you profoundly. Let me give you an analogy of how this works. Um, Think of the rhythm of gathering weekly like um, the ruts that are made in an open field, for instance. Uh, so Thanksgiving, some of you guys uh, were in the South, so some of you guys went hunting. I went hunting. Are you surprised? City boy went hunting? I went hunting. Uh, so th- think about it. For us hunters out there, you're in your truck, and you're driving to that blind again, and then to the feeder, 
And then you're driving to the traps, maybe. And then you're driving back uh, to where you're staying. And, and you're making that round. And you've done this. Maybe for you, you've done it just hundreds of times, thousands of times in that same field, in that same plot of land, uh, over and over, year after year, Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving. You've done this so long that now when your truck gets on the road, uh, I mean, in the field, it's not just a field. It's really a, a sort of like makeshift highway for you, right? You've, you've run ruts there. There's grooves in the road. There's like two places of no grass and then there's grass in the middle. And, and, and it's grooved in such a way that, I mean, I don't really even have to steer that much. It kind of just keeps me in the lane, getting me to where I need to go, right? These ruts, these grooves have been created by my habitual practice of going to the same place over and over and over. Now, the exact same experience is true with the human heart. If you've been dri driving your heart week after week after week after week after week to the cross of Jesus in the gathered church, just taking the same path and the same path and the same path. Do you know what's gonna happen year after year as you are hearing Jesus preached in the sermon and read in the Bible and sung in the songs and remembered in communion? Do you know what's gonna happen to you? Ruts are gonna start forming. Grooves in the road of your heart because you've done this path before. And those ruts, over time, grow so pronounced, so deep, that when suffering comes, and it will, or when you stumble in sin for the thousandth time, and you will, your heart is gonna instinctively know the path back to the gospel. Does that make sense? Because the grooves are there, right? The, the, the habit of coming to him regularly, with, with all the things I, I do. That habit is formed in you in such a way that I, I know where to go. I, and God will use it to keep me on his path. Does that make sense? This is how we get our way back to God, by running ruts in that field until we don't even have to steer anymore. And we need these ruts formed in our hearts so much more than we think. We need it so much more than we think because if we decide that meeting is not that important, which many of us have, and many Christians nationwide have. Can I be honest with you? The, the text of scripture says there is very little hope for us. And we're gonna, we're gonna end here by going back to Hebrews and soberly assess what the scripture says to us. Why do we need this more than we think? Let me show you uh, from scripture. Chapter 10, verse 26. Listen to these haunting words. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So there's so much to say about this. There's so much here. I'm not gonna, I'm over time. I'm not gonna be able to say anything. I just want to do one thing. I want you to look for one word, and the word is for. Do you see the word for there at the beginning of the verse? For, if we go on sinning, deliver it. For, or because, in this context means what I'm about to say might happen if what I just said doesn't happen. It's connecting the two ideas. Well, that makes me want to ask, well, what did he just say has to happen? Do you remember what he just said in verse 25? What did he say? He said, you gather together and encourage one another. You gather and you encourage. 
So, not gathering together and not taking time to encourage each other removes, as it were, the protection that keeps our sinful hearts from having their way. And when that protection, when that bulwark is, is removed and our sinful hearts can do whatever it is we want, the scripture says all hell will break loose. This is serious. I mean, this is, the stakes could not be higher. Let me put this as plainly as I can, okay? You pulling out of community like in, in the local church, will likely be a death sentence for you. I don't know another way to say it. That's what the Bible just said. You pulling out of community in a local church setting will likely be a death sentence for you. Or let me say it positively. You digging in deep here, right here, with these people, as broken as we all are, you digging in deep is how God plans to keep you a Christian. This is his mechanism, y'all. We're gonna end our service with the, the benediction we always do from Jude 1, right? And to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Do you know how he keeps you from stumbling? It's not magic, it's this. It's the habits, it's the spiritual formations that we walk in. These are the mechanisms he gives us. Don't stray from these habits. Singing matters, gathering matters. The, hearing God's word preached and read, it all matters because it's all meant to keep you in the family. And it will, he will preserve you to the end. But walk like he's called you to walk. In fact, that's how we're gonna end the service. I, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna walk in one of those spiritual forming habits. We're gonna walk in one of those ruts we're digging. We're gonna take communion together. So let me pray for us. And then we'll take communion as a church family and then sing to him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And, <clears throat> and we thank you for the gift of the church. It's not perfect. We don't do it perfectly or messy. There's not a perfect local church on earth. Uh, but you have given us the church and the habit of gathering to form us into your image. And we thank you for that. You're kind to us in that. Help us take it as seriously as you do, Lord. Please help us not just be consumers, but contributors. Help us to come here every Sunday from now on and make a decision. I'm going to be on the lookout for people to encourage, strengthen, exhort, serve, help, pray for. Help us to be thoughtful in ways that we haven't been before. And God, form us as we, as we drive our heart down these, these roads over and over. God, would you make those ruts really deep so we be changed? In Jesus' name, amen.